0: are dancers one by one. Big love to all of your in seduction. seduction, Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. In this episode, entitled Numbers, we are discussing how thinking mathematically will give you a huge advantage. In this episode, we will look to answer the following big questions. How can we come to know truth? What is the nature of reality? How should we think about the future? Can we ever be absolutely certain about anything? What is deep time, scale, and orders of magnitude? There are many of us that have an all or nothing mentality. This mentality forces our conclusions into yes or no answers, often described as black and white, and sometimes asserted with absolute certainty. Answers like these are satisfying, they quench our thirst for knowledge. However there are very few meaningful questions that can actually be answered in this way. As we discussed in Leviticus, deductive reasoning provides us with answers that have a quality of certainty, but they cannot be asserted with absolute certainty, unless we are reporting the results of an experiment. The nature of the scientific method is such that it also involves the use of inductive reasoning, and therefore requires us to allow for a certain amount of error in all of our answers, especially those that predict the future. So what science often gives us is a probability, as you are likely aware, Probability is a mathematical calculation and is underpinned with hard numbers. These numbers, or facts, are absolutely certain, but our probability of obtaining a correct answer is not. You shouldn't let this deter you though from taking this information on board and employing it into your daily lives. This probability, this uncertainty, is a fact of reality, and we need not fear it. By calibrating our minds in accordance with reality, we will make the probability of future success much greater. So we can take a sigh of relief when you think of these probabilities and uncertainties, because the probabilities that modern science calculates are so close to certainty, That for the layperson, one can just think of them as true. Also, the scientific method, no matter how uncertain its answers, is our only path to truth. It's the only process we've invented to date that gets us anywhere on any topic. Without it, we have absolutely no truth at all. Now let's chart a path to certainty. How certain are you that the sun will rise tomorrow morning? Is it possible that it won't? Perhaps you think I'm being hyperbolic, but this question brings to light a very important answer and an even more important rule for thinking. That is that one must never think of anything in terms of absolute certainty. There is always some probability that the answer could be incorrect, especially when making predictions. This is the nature of reality. It's a foundational aspect of the scientific method, namely falsifiability. And it is one of the most difficult things for most people to accept. In order for anything to be true, it must first be falsifiable. We can only say then that we are 100% sure if we add a caveat to our claim of 100% certainty. So I could say I know that the sun will rise tomorrow morning with 100% certainty, as long as nothing happens to it in the meantime. The last bit accounts for a rogue quasar ripping through our solar system. system, destroying our planet entirely overnight. The sun definitely wouldn't rise on Earth after such an event. Adding caveats is part of the nature of probability thinking, and something that we need to get very comfortable with in order to incorporate the scientific method into our worldview and our thinking process. Thinking this way makes many people uncomfortable, but it is necessary if we are to ensure that we think correctly. While the scientific method doesn't offer a path to certainty, the process of deductive reasoning does, at least sort of. Deductive reasoning leads many to philosophy, and philosophy can be a very useful tool. But philosophy is not science, nor does it strictly incorporate the scientific method. However, it does borrow from science especially in the modern era. When a philosopher formulates a logical syllogism or prose, they require that their statements be sound. The soundness of a philosophical statement is whether or not it is based on a scientific fact. If the statement is based on a scientific fact, then it is sound. An example here might be helpful before moving on. The statement, all men are apes, is a scientific fact. The theory of evolution and the process of classification called cladistics demonstrates this fact as does the theory of genetics and many other fields of science. So if you are a philosopher and you are constructing a logical syllogism with the statement, all men are apes, then that statement is sound. Now all you need is another sound statement organized into a valid structure with a conclusion and voila, you have the closest thing to absolute certainty humanity has ever discovered. A logical conclusion. This is the nature of deductive reasoning. The conclusion follows necessarily from the preceding statements. As I stated before, the one aspect of deductive reasoning that relies on science is the soundness of the statements. That soundness relies on scientific facts, and those facts are falsifiable. Therefore, those facts could be demonstrated to be wrong, or perhaps, better said, less right. Again, the Let's take another example to further elaborate this point. If you unearth a fossilized skull and assess its clade, you may have some question as to exactly which species it belongs. So there is room for error there. I may believe that the skull is the species Homo habilis, or it may be Homo erectus. You may not be sure exactly which species, but one aspect of this fact is 100% certain. It is a human skull. So all those claims that the skull is human, that it is habilis, that it is erectus are all falsifiable. All scientific facts have to falsi- be falsifiable in some way in order for us to be able to say anything about them at all. This is the nature of scientific thinking. There are facts, and those facts are the foundations of our scientific theories. And those theories may not be completely accurate. There may be some aspect of the facts that end up being falsified, like the exact species to which the human skull belongs. In this way, Theories are honed, further whittling down the margin of error. This is how scientific theories become more true. This doesn't mean that theories are not to be trusted. In fact, just the opposite. This relationship between facts and theories, and therefore, our understanding of reality, is a feature, not a bug. It's a good thing. It keeps us searching for better and more accurate explanations. And, as we do, we uncover the true nature of reality. There is a very important distinction to make here, so I'm going to belabor this point for a bit. First, that science, and therefore scientists, never discover or claim certainty. Inductive reasoning always points towards a probability of some sort, with an error bar to account for inaccuracies. Also, there is always something that could prove some aspect of science wrong, which is the nature of falsifiability. In other words, for something to be scientific, it has to be measurable, and therefore falsifiable there has to be a way for a scientific claim to be demonstrably wrong. In the field of geology and paleontology, there are many facts that, if discovered, could demonstrate some aspect of those theories to be incorrect. One such discovery would be to find human fossilized bones in the Precambrian era. This would falsify some aspect of nearly every geological, biological, and paleontological theory currently known to humanity. And for any of these fields of science to be worth a damn, They have to have this weakness. This is the nature of scientific certainty. But again, to the layperson, to the everyday schlub like you and me, the theories of science are certainties. Theories are made up of facts, and the narrative describing each theory in each of the different fields of science is supported by all the facts and contradicted by none of them. They are, to the layperson, ironclad truth. Truth with a capital T. Irrefutable. The closest one can get to certainty is a scientific theory, but don't be surprised if you don't always like what scientific theories tell us about ourselves and the reality in which we live. Let's take one last example. It's a fact that chimps are apes. It's also a fact that humans are apes. All apes have a common ancestor. Therefore, we, humans, have a common ancestor with chimps. We used to be the same thing that chimps used to be. We courted, paired, mated and raise children together, probably for millions of years, before something split us up for the rest of eternity. Now, as we gaze off at our chimp exes, we might question, as people often do, I wonder what things would have been like if we had stayed together. Maybe that's just me. Anyway, the point is, is that if a layperson is going to speak with any level of certainty, right up to the most certain, absolute certainty, they better be speaking scientifically. There is, after all, no other truth available. Please notice for a moment that the example I just gave you was structured as a logical syllogism and employed as deductive reasoning. Before, when I said chimps are apes and humans are apes and therefore a common ancestor, etc., that is sound and valid logical structure. Learn to recognize logic in the prose that you read. It will help you to identify when people are lying to you or when they're telling you the truth. Let's switch gears for a moment and discuss the nature of reality and solipsism. Reality consists of things that occupy some space for some amount of time. This is both inside and outside of our heads. What I mean is that reality and the events therein happen independent of our brains. But be careful, because our brains are also things in reality. So we must take that into account also. This fact has led some people to worry about something that sounds very scary and unsolvable. It's called the problem of hard solipsism. And the problem goes like this. We cannot demonstrate that we are not in a simulation. Something like the movie The Matrix. We cannot demonstrate that we are not just brains in a vat. We also cannot demonstrate that any one person isn't imagining everything that is happening in reality. A more formal way to say this is that the external world cannot be demonstrated to exist outside of our minds. And that includes other minds. So the external world might not exist outside of our mind. At face value, this seems like a showstopper. But upon further review, there are some elements to hard solipsism that should put you on your guard. First and foremost, it is a problem in philosophy, not science. Whether or not the problem of hard solipsism exists or not, science works. Furthermore... The claims that hard solipsism makes are unfalsifiable. So the problem of hard solipsism is posited without evidence. As we've learned before, that which is claimed without evidence can be disregarded without evidence. For some reason, though, this idea persists, even in scientific circles. Often, people will childishly question reality with the following claim. But how do you know it's real? Or, my least favorite, is it? As if this is saying anything at all. The question forces one to stop and think, though, and I believe this is why this notion has persisted. Its main thrust is skeptical in nature, and so it constantly forces the scientifically minded to pursue the answer. How do we know that reality is real? Hmm. This question leads to epistemology, and luckily for us epistivists, the answer to that question reworded here as, how do we know what is? has proven to provide very real and useful answers. First, let's consider solipsism's very real limitations. We can all demonstrate that reality is known and exists outside of our minds. We can do this by verifying reality with the other minds available. Two people can test reality and both get predictable results. And this is true no matter how those two people attempt to change reality within their own minds. We can also test this by attempting to change reality with our minds right now. Try making this word, bulldog, into another breed of dog. Or try making it into a totally different word right here on the screen. Bulldog. You can't do it in either context. You cannot redefine what a bulldog is to make it into, let's say, a poodle, and you cannot change the word on the screen to be something else, not with your mind anyway. So the solipsist cannot demonstrate their claim that reality is only in the mind. Lastly, solipsism doesn't do any work in our daily lives, except maybe to slow down our progress to a screeching halt. Think of all the progress humanity could have made if they had just stopped questioning If demonstrable reality was actually reality and instead gotten down to the hard work of demonstrating further the truths within reality, one marvels at where we might be. Solipsism takes many forms during our conversations and in our relationships with people and with reality itself. If you get seduced by a solipsist, you're very likely to start thinking odd thoughts like you have your own truth or everyone has their own truth. Or perhaps even that you can manifest reality if you think about it hard enough. And some people even think that if they just stay positive and somehow radiate out positive thoughts into the universe, then something positive will happen to them. Although no one has ever provided a methodology for doing this, nor have they clearly defined what this actually means. These are all forms of solipsism, and while some of these ideas do have some very tiny element of scientific truth, like the fact that two people can witness the same event and have slightly different accounts of what happened, the fact of the matter is that none of these solipsistic ideas endure the scientific method. One frustrating and particularly ill-conceived solipsistic notion is, is that we cannot come to know reality. I've actually been in a conversation with someone who insisted that the wooden fence we stood next to could not be demonstrated to exist. What a moron. It's this type of thinking that grinds progress to a halt. And when you try to reason with people like this, you might be better off just ending the friendship altogether. I bet you never thought you'd be chomping at the bit to get to the math. So let's start with some concepts that deal in mathematics a little bit more directly. The following concepts are incredibly helpful to keep in your mind at all times. We already discussed probability, so I won't talk about it uh, at any length further here. Let's now focus on deep time, scale, orders of magnitude, and space. Most people don't have a good sense of deep time. We can consider expanses of time like years and decades, but anything longer than that gets a little fuzzy. This is why it's important to have the concept of deep time at the forefront of your mind. The concept that you consider will depend greatly on the answer to this question, how deep is deep time? Well, that depends on the topic being discussed. If we are talking about human beings, deep time is measured in millions of years, 7 million if we are considering our modern form, 20 million if we want to go back further to our more monkey-like selves. And further still, over a hundred million years, if we want to consider our modern sexual drive. Recognizing humanity's connection to deep time will save you from believing many false things. I recently heard a podcaster and author respond to the following question. Do you think that men and women can work together? A clumsy question, for sure. But in this context, work was defined more or less in a modern, corporate, team-oriented environment. The podcaster slash author said, I don't know. We've only been doing it for a few decades. This surprised me because upon first hearing this answer, it sounded right to me but then I thought about humanity in terms of deep time. Immediately, both this question and the answer were exposed as being absurd. Men and women have been pairing and partnering and teaming together to accomplish mutual goals in more or less our modern form for millions of years. And sexual partners have been working together as teams for hundreds of millions of years. When you think of the question and answer in terms of deep time, immediately you are forced to further refine and define the question, and also the answer, before you can proceed intelligently. In this example, the question would have better been stated, do you think men and women can work together closely on teams without any sexual attraction, tension, or miscommunication. The answer then would have been better stated as, I don't know, we've only set that as a goal or our standard in the past few decades. These questions and answers get more directly to the point, and we are forced to pursue them more directly by considering deep time. Let's consider another example of how deep time should be used to improve our thinking. During a conversation I had with a colleague, the topic of climate change came up. We went back and forth for a while as he described his skepticism of exactly what climate change is and how well we have come to understand it. Here he was poorly applying skepticism. Not uncommon. Anyway, one of the points that I made was that many of the most drastic and devastating changes are going to happen in our future, many decades from now. What he said next surprised me. He said, well, isn't that convenient? With a distasteful tone. He believed this because he thought that our climate scientists were trying to fool us somehow and that they didn't have anything evident that they could point to in the here and now. Mind you, he never provided any evidence to support this belief. He just based it on a generalized skepticism. This response from him floored me. It also exposed him as someone that wasn't taking into account deep time. Whereas in the previous example, we looked into our deep past. This time we need to look into our deep future. And my friend was failing to do so. My immediate response to this was that it was actually very inconvenient that the changes in the climate weren't happening much sooner and with much more obvious results. If it were blatantly obvious, then people like him would likely be convinced of the seriousness of climate change. Although, it does seem that there are many people that will never believe certain things, no matter how obvious. I once saw a man on the news standing in water up to his knees while claiming that flooding was not an issue in his neighborhood, and that climate change wasn't happening. Very, very sad. Getting back to my friend though, he wasn't taking into account the multiple decades of data we have collected, the projections made for our future based on that data, the predictions that have already come to pass, the improvements to our current data collection efforts, and thus the very high probability that our current projections are accurate and correct. And most importantly, he wasn't taking into account just how accurate our science is regarding future predictions generally. If he had been alive during the first prediction of Halley's Comet, he would have likely hand-waved the prediction away, only to eat his words on that amazing day in 1758. He likely won't be alive when today's predictions for the worst-case scenarios come to pass, but his children will be and they will likely wish he and his generation, me included, had taken the precautions and predictions more seriously. The concept of deep time goes both ways, seemingly forever. But the scientific method has collected huge epochs of that data and used it to accurately predict the future over and over again. And yet we still hear it widely stated that no one knows what the future holds and other such nonsense. The truth of the matter is, is that science knows what the future holds with a very high probability because it has collected the historical data, the modern data and compiled it into accurate models that have predicted our future right down to the degree, the millimeter, and the second. The scientific method is so good at doing this that it's time we ripped off our veil of ignorance and stood squarely face-to-face with our known future. My favorite aspect of deep time is all the different ways there are to think about it. We already touched on one, and that was the history of mankind. On this scale, we are talking about time in millions of years. Humans evolved over about 7 million years. Before that, we were much more like our chimp cousins and our monkey aunts. If you want to continue through history, you can go back to primates and old world monkeys until you get all the way back to something that looks like a small mouse. That scale is tens of millions of years. Let's say, though, that you want to cover more time. The best way to do that is to think of geologic time. Geologic time incorporates ages, epochs, periods, eras, and eons. Here we are talking about millions of years, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, and billions of years. Geologic time is great because it includes so much information like evolution of life, plate tectonics, rock strata, and extinctions. The richness of geologic time is so varied and detailed to go over here, but if you are looking for nearly endless account of deep time on planet Earth, then geologic time is a good fit for you. To deal with an even larger time scales, it's necessary to learn about cosmic or cosmological time. This time scale is in the tens of billions of years and covers tens of billions of light years of space. Cosmological time is punctuated by density of matter and how it spreads evenly throughout the universe. Here we learn about the formation of stars and galaxies and the size and shape of the universe. Distance is also incorporated into this scale of deep time as light years, parsecs and astronomical units. Due to the nature of deep time and its relationship to space, we've come to understand them as a four-dimensional mathematical model called spacetime. While this is not completely necessary when considering deep time for the purpose of this video, space-time is a valuable concept to have in mind generally. The idea is that there are the three dimensions of which we are aware, the X, Y, and Z axes, and a fourth dimension of time. Time doesn't have a beginning or end and lends itself nicely to the concept of infinity and goes in one direction, at least most of the time. So 3D objects move through space-time from the past to the future. It gets really complicated really quickly, and perhaps I'll spend more time on it in future videos. But for now, just keep in mind that learning about the different time scales, either by reviewing geologic time or by peering into space, is a very beneficial endeavor. It is also the most awe-inspiring activity I've ever engaged in. If we would rather focus on the future, there again, science provides us with the best models available to understand exactly what will happen. We already touched on climate change, models, and how accurately they have predicted our future. You can check this, by the way. Review the scientific predictions made in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and marvel at how accurate they were in predicting sea level rise, acidification of the oceans, changes in freshwater levels, frequency of severe weather events, and so much more. The models were good then, and they're even better now. But there is so much more about our futures to learn about. How about our planetary future? The fact that our sun will explode one day, ending all possibility of life in our solar system. Or how about our galactic future? The fact that the Andromeda galaxy is headed right for us, at incredible speed. Or what about our cosmic future? The fact that our universe will experience a long, slow, and cold death. One day, the galaxies will be so far apart, except for those here in our local group, that any cosmologist of that time will not be able to tell that the Big Bang ever occurred. That's almost sad when you think about it, and when you consider how wonderfully inspiring are the fields of cosmology and astronomy, it becomes even worse. The scientific method has given us models to predict almost every aspect of our future experiences, down to the minutest of details. The future of our likely evolutionary path, the future of life on this planet, the future of the planet itself, the future of our sun, the future of our galaxy, and the future of our universe. On an unprecedented level... We can prophecy accurately our future. No longer are we tempted to read the bones of chickens or be fooled by the ancient wisdom of our ancestors. Instead, we have science. We know the truth. By having an understanding of times past, present, and future, you will be much more likely to sniff out false claims and incorrect ideas. So let's move on to scale. Along with having an understanding of time, it's also very important to have some understanding of how large and how small things are. Those error bars we discussed earlier have been whittled away to almost nothing in certain fields of science, and the results are truly mind-blowing. I've always disliked it when a scientist writes a book for a layperson and then says something like, The largest structure in the universe is a million, 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 million times larger than the Earth. Well, great. Thanks for that, I guess. I still have no comprehension of what that means. And perhaps I can do a little better now and give you the gist of scale. Let's start with orders of magnitude. This is a phrase that will suit you well in understanding size, scale, time, and scope. In an interview I conducted for Season 2 of this podcast, Ear Seduction, I talked with someone who rejected the idea that one can have a scientific worldview. Disregarding the possibility that the term worldview might not be a coherent idea, let's consider for a moment his position. My guest defined worldview ...as a model of the world in which an agent can make sense of their actions. He claimed that his worldview was everything that he came into contact with in his daily experience. So, essentially, a 20-foot bubble surrounding him. This is all he was concerned with. My scientific worldview, conversely, has opened up my eyes to a bubble many orders of magnitude larger than his... ...and also includes things that are many orders of magnitude smaller. My worldview encompasses the entire planet in the vast expanses of space-time. It also includes the very small, the viruses and microbes that often plague us, and so, so much more. But in order for me to consider his worldview, I had to throw out huge portions of my understanding of both the very large and the very small. For the sake of this example, though, let's restrict my worldview to our planet Earth. And let's only consider things that are of medium size, i.e. things that are visible. How many orders of magnitude larger is my worldview than my guest's? His was a 20-foot bubble, versus my 41,804,400 feet bubble known as Earth, that large number being the diameter of Earth. So my worldview is six orders of magnitude larger than my guests. And again, that is restricting myself to just the Earth. My worldview extends past the Earth, of course, as many as any mindful worldview must, but six orders of magnitude is plenty. To calculate this, I just move the decimal place from 20 over six places to 20 million, to account for the size of my number. My number is in the tens of millions. His number is in the tens. Thus, I have a worldview that is six orders of magnitude larger than my guests. So how is that helpful? Well, the real benefit expresses itself when we consider the second part of the definition of what a worldview is. How can I ensure that my actions make sense? How do I proceed to act so that my actions provide the most benefit? Well, when considering a worldview, I imagine that one must take into account the entire world, at a minimum. So, that is my scale. To compare these two worldviews, mine takes into account all of humanity. My actions, therefore, are modified to accommodate all the people with which I share this planet. My guest's worldview doesn't have this expansive consideration. So, the decisions that I make in my daily life have all the same considerations my guests do, plus... All the considerations I can come to know by learning more about the world at large. These decisions range in scope, from simple actions, like what food to buy, to much more complex ones, like whom should I date, and how should I invest my money. By considering all the scientific information available to me, about our entire planet, I'm able to make wise, well-informed decisions. By contrast, my guest labeled his own worldview as quaint, and it showed. I can't imagine being so small-minded that I would even attempt to define my worldview on such a small scale. By expanding your thinking to an appropriate scale, you'll reap the benefits of inclusive thinking, thinking that considers all the orders of magnitude available to you, and you won't get stuck in the sludge of selfishness. So how else can we think about scale? Well, it helps to have some understanding of our place in the universe. There are many scientists that claim that we are just a pale blue dot insignificant set against the deep expanse of space, or something like that. While it's true that in relation to the scale of the universe, our planet Earth is pretty small, think like a grain of sand compared to our entire solar system, only that comparison doesn't even begin to describe the true difference in scale, but to say or imply that we are therefore insignificant is preposterous, especially to us. While the universe is made up of largely either nothing or somethings that don't seem to understand much, Homo sapiens comprehend quite a lot. Specifically, that our brains are made up of the exact same things, that the rest of the universe is made from, only in such an interesting configuration that it, our brain, can comprehend exactly how we got here, where here is, that here won't be here for long, and that long is in fact much longer than we thought. While the physical scale of our brains is quite small in comparison to something like a galaxy, the expanse of our thoughts, once we embrace a scientific worldview, can be almost infinite. Let's now get to our final thought. Understanding the concepts I just described will assist you in sniffing out nonsense. People of all types will be happy to take your money by appealing to your ignorance. If you are ignorant to all the information that we've covered in this series thus far, then you are much more likely to attribute false conclusions to the phenomena you experience. A great example of this is germs. For millennia, humanity didn't know that there existed such tiny things as germs. Germs that could invade our bodies and cause sickness. Humanity, ignorant of even the concept of of the very small, assumed that sickness was caused by a demon or a devil or perhaps the odd lady that lived down the way. False beliefs like these led to all manner of nonsense and even senseless murder. While it may seem impossible for a modern person to be fooled in this way, take size and scale seriously. Become familiar with just how small the very small can be and just how big the very big has become. Investigate what we have come to know about deep time space, and space-time. The quest for this knowledge will open your mind to so much more than just mathematical way of thinking. Learning about these concepts can lead to a deep feeling of numinous inspiration, followed by waves of awe and wonder. The ancients used to bicker about how many angels could fit on the head of of a pin. The real question is how many bacteria? In the next episode, entitled Deuteronomy, we will lay the foundation of an intellectually honest moral system. Thank you, and this has been Ear Seduction.